It is a joy to be here with you today and to mark the moment, the significant moment in the life of our church and in one of our staff members' lives that this one is. It was almost 15 years ago that a young Wheaton College student named Pete Stearns walked into the life of Christ Church. And he volunteered his energies in the uh, ministry to our kids and uh, just kept coming back week after week and loving up on our kids. It did not take very long for anybody who was paying attention to notice that this young man was something special, that he had a heart for people and for God that was just pounding and and translated in the most amazing ways. And uh, very soon we began to think about how, how do we keep creating more space for this young man to use his gifts? Eventually he becomes an intern with us He then rises to the position of director of our middle school ministries. He then becomes the head of the entire student ministries of Christ Church. He then rises to the family ministry uh, pastor position of the church. He becomes a member of our senior leadership team. He becomes one of the most important servants in the life of our church. Along the way, we have the privilege of ordaining him to the pastoral ministry. I personally had the joy of baptizing Pete's wife, Brittany, into the Christian faith and to uh, performing their wedding. Um, He turned around and returned the favor and married my son, Cole, and to Heather DeBoer this past January. We have watched them uh, give birth to two beautiful boys, Shepard and Archer, that have become a source of delight to so many of us as we've gotten to know them. And now Pete is about to take the next step on the journey. He is leaving the nest as we knew one day he would need to. And he's becoming the lead pastor now of St. Mark's Church in Burlington, North Carolina, a thriving congregation, uh, ministering um, to its community and to the world in a really significant way. And today is the last day that Pete is gonna be preaching here as an associate pastor. And we are really eager to hear what God has put on his heart. Let me just speak to him though personally for a minute. And I'm trying not to wreck you here, brother. And just say what I've said to you privately and in other settings, just how absolutely confident I am that you've got this. And more importantly, that God's got you and you've got an amazing ministry ahead of you. You are a gifted preacher and teacher. You are a remarkable shepherd of people. You are a creative ministry uh, innovator and integrator in the most remarkable kind of way. You are somebody that loves Jesus and loves his people and understands that Jesus meant for his people to go out and love the world in his name. And so we are just really excited at what God is going to do through you, in you, and Brittany, and your boys, and who knows if more will be on the way. We'll see. Uh, We'll be looking forward to bringing you back as a guest from time to time here. And uh, I just hope that the love this church family has for you will be part of the grace bank that you draw on frequently as you need it in the days to come. And we'll be excited to welcome you home, you and Britt and the boys, anytime you come back into the circle. But I want to invite you to come on up now and to share with us God's word as he's put it on your heart for today. Will you welcome Pete Stearns? (laughs) 
Well, I very intentionally saved all of the emotional parts of my sermon for the very end, so I appreciate you doing that to me, Dan. You know, bring it back into the middle here. Um, but as Dan said, I, uh, this is the last time I get to say that I am one of the pastors here at Christ Church. <laughs> all right, guys, have a good one. Uh, <laughs> and... And I am so thankful to have called this my church home, my church family, um, for the better part of two decades. Um, and I'm thrilled to be preaching in a part of this short sermon series, a series focused on dispelling the myths that we so often tell ourselves, dispelling the untruths that, that our inner spirit tells us about our insignificance, our unvaluable tendencies. You see, a few years ago, I had a chance uh, to go down to Fuller Seminary. And and we were in a cohort that was going to be focused on trying to identify the drivers of our self-perceived significance. We were looking to see if there were universal platforms upon which we developed our own understanding of our self-worth. And we identified three things, identity, belonging, and purpose. And we said that these three things, identity, belonging, and purpose, were these intrinsic universal drivers of significance for each of us. And you see, identity, belonging, and purpose are actually very good things. They're things that are rooted in us in the fabric of our DNA by a a creative God that made us. But we have allowed culture to manipulate our understandings of these uh, basic foundations of human life and to seed words of doubt and mistruth into how we perceive our own significance. And so first, our culture has told us that our identity is based on what we do. We have been told that that who we are is based entirely upon what we do or have done or will do. And this is why oftentimes if someone asks you uh, to introduce yourself, you start by saying things like where you work or where you go to school or where you went to school or the role that you play in your family. We start to talk about the activities that we participate in, the hobbies that bring us joy. We think about the teams that we cheer for, the games that we go to, the concerts that we enjoy, the restaurants that we eat at. And we use these to create this mosaic of things that we believe curates an identity for us. And so our understanding of ourselves is directly tied to what we have done and will do. But then we continue in deriving our value by thinking about our belonging. And Sue Ann talked about this quite a bit last week. But we understand our belonging as who we are with. The world tells us you belong if you are surrounded by others. And so we'll continue to describe ourselves in in terms of our family. I am so-and-so's son or daughter, husband or wife, brother or sister. We'll articulate why we belong at, at a social gathering by saying, this person invited me. 
I'm friends with this group of people, and if this group of people are around me, then I have significance here. We think about our workplaces, our colleagues, our classmates, our teammates, those that we journey through life with, and we buy into the myth that we belong in this world on the basis of the people who are around us. But third is that culture then tells us that our purpose or, or our true value is then determined by the intersection of these first two drivers. My purpose in this world is where my identity intersects with my belonging, where what I do ties in with who I am with. And, and oftentimes we think of it in, in terms of our provision, our purpose is to provide for those that we belong to. And so we buy into this myth that, that our value is tied into the wealth that we have accumulated, the things that we have purchased, that which we can provide for our family, our friends, and our community. Second, we understand it in terms of our popularity. I have significance, I have value in this world if my belonging is greater than everyone else. And so my purpose is to make more connections, to extend my network. And the bigger my network, the more meaningful my life. Or we think about it in terms of power. And we say that, that who I am influences who I am with. And the more power I can have, the more influence I can have, the more I can shape the community around me and the more significant I become. Well, here's the problem with buying into the way that our culture has told us we should pursue these fundamental foundations of value. They are fragile and they are temporary. You see, we felt this in a very powerful way starting 21 months ago. When we entered into the COVID-19 pandemic, when we received shelter-in-place orders, suddenly, in the blink of an eye, our identity dissolved. We no longer worked in the way that we had worked before. Some of us lost our jobs entirely. The activities and the hobbies that we so often enjoyed were closed. The events, the games, the concerts were canceled. And suddenly we were left looking at our lives, looking at our identity, and asking ourselves, who am I without these things? If I cannot do then who am I really? You see, this at its root is an identity crisis. And it's one that may be familiar to some. It doesn't take a pandemic to, to spiral into this type of crisis. Many here have, have lost a job unexpectedly and found themselves wrestling with, with who they were at the core because they, they no longer had the job that had defined them for all those years. Some have experienced sickness or injury that has robbed them of the things that they enjoyed doing. And so in the context of this crisis, they leaned upon their community, their belonging, their family, and their friends to help them reconstruct 
who they were. But you see, COVID-19 compounded the issue of an identity crisis by cultivating a belonging crisis. Because suddenly, in the midst of losing our identity, we also lost our community. We found ourselves isolated from friends, from family, from colleagues, from those that we attended church with, from teammates and classmates. And so we were left grappling with this loss of significance by ourselves. We were alone and afraid. And so our purpose then, as the intersection of our identity and our belonging, became hopeless. If what I do no longer defines who I am, if I no longer have people around me, then how can my identity influence my belonging? And to be honest, I imagine most of us are still grappling with that loss of purpose. And we are believing the myth that we have told ourselves that we are unvaluable, unworthy, and insignificant. You see, I think it's this crisis of identity, belonging, and purpose that has led to the polarization and the vitriol that we have seen in our country, in our community, and in our churches in just these past two years. We are grasping for some semblance of purpose, but we're using all of the wrong mediums. And we're trying to project our own fears that we are insignificant upon everyone else, only to find that it leads us on this destructive spiral. Well, the Israelites experienced something similar to the pandemic in their own history. You see, there was a point where this nomadic people that followed after their God, that made their decisions entirely dependent upon his provision, his power, his influence, decided that they actually wanted to measure themselves by the significance of the world. And so they asked God for a king so that they could follow after someone. And these kings grew progressively more destructive and farther from God. And so the Israelites began to understand their significance as it pertained to their power within the context of the world. They sought to mine and receive value out of that which they could build, that which they could own, the wealth that they could accumulate. And their purpose then became the influence that they could have on the nations around them. And they reached a point of unprecedented significance until the Babylonian Empire conquered them. Took everything that was valuable to them, scattered their belonging, and assimilated them into a culture that was not their own, pulled them out of their homes, out of their comfort, out of their security, and out of their significance, and led them into a life defined by hopelessness. 
You see, the prophet Isaiah says in his writings to the Israel, Israelites in, in chapter 21, he says that you are like grain, like stocks of wheat that find yourself on the threshing floor, being crushed by the weight of the threshing sledge of the world powers that you sought to emulate. You see, we're not all familiar with this concept of threshing, but it's one that's woven throughout scripture and one that we're gonna talk about a little today. Essentially, after the harvest, after the wheat stalks were cut down, the harvesters would, would bring the wheat and they would place it upon the solid foundation, the solid rock threshing floor. And then they would strap up their working animals with these massive sleds, these sledges that were filled with stones and, and sharp metal, and the animals would walk over the grain over and over and over and over again. And the threshing sledge would slowly break down the stalks of wheat. It would crush them to the point that it was absolutely obliterated so that everything that was not of substance would be blown away. The grain itself would remain, but the rest of the stock would be so mangled and mashed that it would turn into this fine dust and it would be blown away as the harvester came with their winnowing fork. And what remained on the threshing floor was that which was significant and could be turned for a prophet. And so in the midst of their exile, Isaiah says that the Israelites were being crushed, decimated, broken down by the threshing sledge of the Babylonians. And you see, this offers both a sense of crisis, but also of hope. Well, unlike us, the Israelites were not in exile for two years, but for 70 they had generations of hopelessness, of insecurities, and of anxieties. And by the time they were finally allowed to leave and head back to their homes, they were left in a place of despair and in confusion. They didn't know how they could possibly put their lives back together and they became angry with God. Because even though he had delivered them from exile, they were fixated on what had happened in the past. They wanted to reclaim the significance that they once had. One of the common refrains that I have heard and I have spoken during this pandemic is a desire to get back to how things once were. A desire to somehow reclaim and rebuild the stocks of wheat that once identified our lives and brought us purpose and value and significance. A hope that one day we will have what we once had. But I think we all know that this is a false hope for one of two reasons. First, for anyone that has had a child smash an heirloom and, and tried to piece it together, you know that it never quite comes back together like it once was. But second, because we have projected a false hope in something that was never satisfying in the first place. 
And so the Israelites too sit in this place of pain, of confusion, and of loss. Struggling to understand how they put the pieces of their life back together. And God speaks to them through his prophet Isaiah. And he says, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, you worm, Jacob, little Israel, do not fear, for I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You see, it's in this place of confusion, in this place of hopelessness, that God steps in and offers the Israelites a chance to redeem their identity and their belonging. He says that you have been threshed on the floor. Everything that you thought was valuable about yourself has been blown away. And all you have is this shell of who you wanted to be, but that shell is what I want. Are you willing to place it in my hand? Are you willing to take the only thing that is valuable to you anymore and give it to me? Will you take my hand and be identified not as a world power, but instead as a follower of the one true God? And then second, he says, and he claims that I am your God Israel. And so he redeems a people, not a nation, but a people that are beloved by God, that are chosen by him to have significance, not just in this world, but eternally. I love that he uses these words and he, he calls Israel a worm and he calls Israel little and it feels almost abusive as you understand the context that they're living in. But, but God is not making fun of Israel here. He is speaking directly to the lies that they have told themselves in the midst of their chaos, in the midst of their brokenness. They believe themselves to be nothing. And God dispels their lie for them. And declares his love and his desire for them. And his invitation to draw them into significance. And he says, if you place your identity in me, if you understand your belonging as the church of God, then I will renew your purpose. It says in verses 15 and 16, see, I will make you into a threshing sledge, new and sharp with many teeth. You will thresh the mountains and crush them and reduce the hills to chaff. You will winnow them. The wind will pick them up and a gale will blow them away, but you will rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. I love the poetry here. God takes the Israelites from the threshing floor, from the crushing weight of the threshing sledge, and he says, now if you place your identity in me, if you place your belonging in my body, if you're willing to trust me, then I will redeem you and I will make you the very sledge that crushed you. Now it feels a little bit heavy-handed, but we need to remember that the process of threshing has nothing to do with destruction, but rather refinement. 
You see, the process of threshing is to eliminate all that which pollutes the value of the grain so that they can have that which is at its purest significant. And so having been threshed, God invites his chosen people, which extends through Jesus to you and I, to become instruments of refinement in our world, to push back darkness and sin and brokenness. Why? Well, in Matthew 3, 11 through 12, we now understand the Israelites' purpose in context of eternity. John the Baptist is speaking to a large crowd of people, talking about Jesus' ministry, which is about to begin on that very day, and he says this about what Jesus has come to do. I will baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one, Jesus, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We are called to be these instruments of threshing. Why? So that when Jesus comes again, the grain, his people, his children will be prepared to be harvested by the one true God. We are called not to destroy the nations, but to redeem them, to refine them. We are called not to offer hate and judgment, but instead to see the real value, the significance in each and every person that we come into contact with and walk beside them to thresh out all that which holds them back from understanding their true worth, their true value. God invites us into a purpose that is eternal. But here's what I've been learning. This leads us to a place of, of tension. Because to take God's hand, to enter into a belonging within his body, and to receive his eternal purposes, we have to open our own. You see, we need to choose as people, do we want fragile control where we can grab a hold of our lives? We can cling to this temporary, fragile state that we live in. Many of us like what we do, who we belong to, the significance of power and popularity and provision. And we must decide, are we willing to let all of that control go? so that we might reach out into surrendered security? Or will we constantly choose that which we know versus that which will come? You see, I tested this tension this week with some interviews, and I did these uh, kind of street interviews, and there's one interview in particular that stood out to me because I think it really speaks uh, to the challenge that each and every one of us face. So I want to play that video for us. Would you like a piece of candy right now? Or instead, would you like daddy to get you a special present tomorrow? 
would like candy. You pick the candy right now instead of the special present tomorrow? Yeah, is it a dinosaur present? I don't know what it's gonna be. But which one do you pick? Candy. The candy right now? Yeah. I'll do candy on Christmas Day, okay? You'll do the present on Christmas Day? Yeah. Okay. Christmas Day, okay? Okay. Well, I was told that I would be in trouble if I didn't highlight Shepard in my last sermon, so there's that nod to that. But. The reality is, is it's easy to look at a child who recognizes this opportunity to seize control on the thing that he knows, the thing that he likes, the thing that brings him some comfort, and, and laugh at the reality that what would come the next day would probably be far greater than the little dum-dum that we gave him. And it's easy to look at that and, and shake our heads. But if I'm honest, I don't think I've matured much from that state of being, right? My candy has changed a little bit, but I often hold very tightly to the rewards that I know rather than opening my hands to the significance that I do not. You see, I came to Christ Church 15 years ago. And when I came to Christ Church, I came with a posture of open hands. And I experienced this amazing community of people that God put into my life. I found my identity in serving with our students. I found a belonging in the fold of this congregation, in the mentorship of wonderful pastors, in the relationships developed with families that, that invited us into their homes, that shared meals with us, Thanksgiving and Easter dinners with us, that told us we belonged. And I found significance in being able to use my gifts to serve the community that I so loved. But somewhere along the way, I could feel myself closing my hands on that control. I could feel myself holding tightly to the church that I loved, to the people that had embraced me, to the significance that I felt here. And somewhere along the way, I stopped surrendering myself to God and his will. I still served him in this place, I still served him in the context of my control, but I was closed off to where he might be leading next, to how he might be asking me to surrender. And so that's why in April of this past year, when a church in Burlington, North Carolina, called me out of the blue to ask me if I would be interested in candidating for a position at their church, it was easy for me with closed hands to say, no thank you. Without any thought, without any prayer, to say, I am satisfied here. I see my future, my belonging, my significance, my identity as a pastor of Christ Church. I want to raise my boys here. I want to be a part of this community. And so I said no. And I didn't think much about it 
for about four months. And then four months later, I was on Rock and Canoe, our fourth and fifth grade trip. And so if you ever want to have a, a spiritual mountaintop moment, I encourage you to volunteer with our fourth and fifth graders. I was on a Rock and Canoe trip, and I was doing my quiet time. And in the midst of that quiet time, I just felt this overwhelming sense of conviction that for the past two, three years, I had been unfaithful in exploring what God might have for me. I had been unwilling to release my grip on the control that I felt of my identity and belonging and purpose at Christ Church. And I specifically felt ashamed at how quickly and thoughtlessly and prayerlessly I had turned down this church in North Carolina. And so I prayed at the end of that quiet time and I made a promise to God. I said, God, whatever comes next, I will at least consider it. How about that for a half-hearted conviction? I'll at least consider it, God. I'll hear you out. I'm probably still gonna say no, but I'll at least like go through the motions. And my hands opened ever so slightly. Well, later that afternoon, I got an email from St. Mark's Community Church in Burlington, North Carolina. The same church that four months before I had said no and not thought about. And they said, Pete, God put you on our hearts today. And we're writing to ask you if you would consider jumping back in. And I remember in that moment, it was just so clear that God was speaking to me and saying, you made this promise, you made this commitment to explore what might be next, and guess what? I'm giving you a chance to redeem your unfaithful habits from before. I'm giving you a chance to see what is next is actually what I already had for you, but you were closed off to exploring. And so I said I would start having conversations, but remember, I didn't say I would do it. I just said I would go through the motions. And so the next week I had this interview and, uh, and I'm really gonna get choked up if this track just keeps running in the background here. This is gonna, this is gonna kill me. But I, you know, the next week I had this interview and the interview went pretty well. Um, and, and, but I really felt like I was just kind of going through the motions, exploring this. And, and I got off the call thinking to myself in the back of my head, well, I'll, I'll keep having conversations, but I can't imagine that we're gonna do this. And the next morning I came to church and, and during one of our leadership teams, one of our pastors shared a devo devotional reflection. And the devotional reflection for that day was to take five minutes by yourself and quietly reflect on a time that God had asked you to say goodbye to home and enter into the unknown. And I was like, okay, God. Like, this is a coincidence, right? It's easy to spiritualize things. And so, you know, again, I pushed that down. And then the next week I had my second interview. And at the end of the second interview, I was starting to feel a little bit different. I was starting to panic because uh, it felt like, hey, something might be happening here. And so I called a trusted mentor and friend of mine, a pastor of mine from Seattle, uh, a guy named Matt. And he has stood beside me throughout the entirety of uh, my life in ministry. And I asked for his help discerning. And so he prayed over me, and he prayed two things that gave me a lot of relief. He prayed that my four-year-old son, Shepard, would speak a truth into my life 
that he didn't understand, but I did. And then second, that my change of verse wife, sorry, Brittany, would be more excited about the opportunity than I was. And so I hung up the phone with a sigh of relief because I was like, that's never going to happen. Perfect. Okay. The next morning, my four-year-old comes and sits next to me on the couch and he says, he says, dad, I want to go visit my cousin Miriam, who happens to live in North Carolina. And I said, yeah, that would be fun. And I was thinking I might go down there for an interview, so maybe we will. And he said, he said, but this time I don't want to fly there, Dad. I want to buy a big truck so we can put our whole house in it and we can live there forever. And then it wasn't as funny. I was like, okay, all right, God, I, I hear you. But I was still holding on to Brittany. I was like, come on. And, uh, and so we go down and, and we have our interviews down there. And, and after two days of, of intensive interviews, I really had fallen in love with the church, but I was still wrestling with the weight of the leap of faith and what it would do to our family if we recklessly let go of our security, if we recklessly let go of our control and we took a leap of faith and God didn't meet us there. And so I called Brittany and I said, I'm not going to take this job. I'm going to, I'm going to pull my name out. Uh, it's just not right. I just, like, we can't take this risk. And Brittany paused for a minute and she said, huh, because I'm feeling really great about it. And so that night we talked and we prayed together and we came to the conclusion that God was asking us to open our hands. to let go of the place that we had loved and that had loved us. To let go of the church in which we experienced his call for the first time, in which we had been brought into his kingdom purposes. To say goodbye to the mentors, the friends, the students that we had cared deeply about and had invested so much in us. And as hard as it was, together we felt clear that God was asking us to open our hands, to consider what he might have for us. So a week later, the call came, and they let me know that they were going to be extending that offer, and that I should take some time to talk with Brittany and to pray over this one final time. And I got off the phone and it was around bedtime. And so I walked upstairs and, and I'm just feeling this whirlwind of emotions in my spirit. And so I lay down in bed with Shepard to, to put him to bed. And as I'm laying there, I can just feel this overwhelming fear, this insecurity, this self-doubt. And I said to myself, I can't do this. Who do I think I am that I can step into a church of this significance, following a pastor that has, has written his legacy over the past 40 years there? I am not equipped to do this. And I laid there next to my son and just started crying. Tears rolling down my face. And Shepard asked me, Daddy, can we do one of our prayers? And we have this little app, and the app 
reads a verse over us. And we sit there and we reflect on that verse. And we let it guide our thoughts as we go to bed. And the verse for that day, in the midst of my insecurity, in the midst of my fear, in the midst of believing the truth or the the lie of insignificance that I was telling myself, God said these words to me from Isaiah 41, 13. For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And it was clear that God was telling me, you need to release the control on what you can do. You need to release the control and the the, the belonging that you have built on the purpose you, you have perceived and take my hand so I can lead you into an identity that is found only in me, to a belonging that is found only in the broader body of the church, the significance that is not rooted in your power, in your provision, in your popularity, but rather is rooted in my redemption and my refinement. And as we leave, that's my prayer for each of us, that we would be encouraged by this testimony of someone stubbornly holding on to the comfort, the security, and the control that comes from building your identity and your belonging and your purpose in those things that are fragile and temporary. Instead, open our hands, wherever it may be in our life, however God may be leading, so that we can take his hand, so that he might carry us through a season of challenge and confusion, and he might redeem us into the threshing sledge that refines this world and helps elevate the value that is rooted in eternity in all those that surround us. God is good. We need not be afraid, for he will help us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, you are a good God. And Lord, I humbly admit to you today that even as we take this leap of faith, I still feel the ever-present temptation to grab control, to hold on to comfort, to pursue my own personal significance. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. We pray that you would grab hold of our hands Lord, that however slightly we might open our fist, that you would take that and you would lead us into a redemptive journey. Lord, so that we might be instruments of your refinement, your reconciliation, and your redemption in this world. We pray this in your name. Amen.